HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Thank you once again for joining us on the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. I'm running solo today. Uh, Tune in next week. Uh, My co-host, Charlie Comer, will be back in the studio. But we've got a jam-packed show today. Because it is almost St. Patrick's Day, we are going to be taking a little bit of a trip to Ireland. We're joined on the line at the top of the show by John Flahaven, who is a sixth-generation CEO of Flahaven's Irish Oats. And then in the second half of the show, we've got a little treat for you. Um, filmmaker Merrill Williams will be joining us to discuss a new kind of love, romance, and wildness food movie. So stay tuned. I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, John's flight, unfortunately, got canceled. We were hoping to be sitting across from him in the studio, but instead, as John said just before we jumped on, we're going to be across the ocean. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aaron. I'm delighted to be with you, in spirit anyway, if not in, if not in person. <laughs> well, it's always a treat to hear an Irish accent, in my opinion. Um, so, I, you know... Flahaven's Irish Oats is one of the most recognized and beloved um, brands in all of Ireland. You guys have been doing amazing work for, as we said at the top, over six generations. Um, One, producing great breakfast cereals, but two, um, really some innovative work around reducing your carpet footprint, which uh, I want to talk about. But before we get there, maybe you can give us 
just a little bit of uh, a nugget of the the founding story uh, about how your family's business got started, you know, over 235 years ago. Well, um, I can trace my family back to uh, the late 1700s, and we're putting it down at around uh, 1785. Uh, we reckon the, the my great, great, great grandfather was milling here in the little village of Kilmac Thomas. But uh, I suppose we could actually possibly even go back a bit further than that, because in the village of Kilmac Thomas, uh, there was a survey done in 1656, which showed that there was two mills in the village, and it's, as I say, quite a small little place. There, there's maybe five, six hundred people in it, and uh, there was a in 1656 there were two mills in repair and working at that stage. So I think uh, we can definitely claim late 1700s. But you could actually go back. Uh, we could almost go back even further to the 1600s. So wow. uh, quite, a, quite a long period of time. <laughs> I'll bet. I feel I, I, like I, I feel lucky that I can trace my family back like two generations, much less. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, we would have. Um, I suppose in, in the States, I suppose people will move around more. In Ireland, uh, The if I follow my various uh, antecedents, they've all been coming within a fairly short, you know, maybe about a, a 20, 20, 30 mile radius of here, you know, between my mother's people and my grandmother's people. And, you know, they've all been, haven't traveled that far. So we would we wouldn't even though I suppose there are other there are so many other people travel from Ireland but the Flavians didn't travel that much. <laughs> but, uh, um, actually, actually, I was coming uh, and I was uh, when I was uh, going through some old letters here. Uh, I found actually found a few letters from the states. Uh, and uh, I'm not quite sure from a fellow called Matthew Kelly up in Chicopee Falls in Massachusetts. And uh, he was writing to my uh, my great-grandfather, a man called Thomas Flavin, and he was writing to him in the 1860s. And it's actually very interesting because he was, uh, this man was, in Massachusetts was uh, talking about the start of the American Civil War. And he was talking about uh, uh, the rebels taking Fort Sumter and uh, the boys of Massachusetts going down to protect Washington. And uh, was, uh, I think they talking about the Southerners were going to come and they intended to go on tar and feather the president. So it's actually got a full flavor of the whole American Civil War from these particular letters. So it's wow. very interesting. That, I mean, that is, that is just amazing. It's kind of wild to think about, um, you know, a business that has been, uh, you know, oh, I feel like oatmeal is a thing right now that feels both new and old. I mean, I know a lot of listeners, myself included, may have memories of our, you know, mom making hot breakfast cereals growing up. But 
I do think there has been like this new craze with, you know, the overnight oats and people really looking at um, this particular kind of uh, grain in a, in a new light. And I'm, I'm sure that's been great for your company. Um, I want to understand for folks a little bit where you come into the oat process. So maybe we can start um, by, by talking a little bit about your milling facility and why oats need to be milled and a little bit how milling technology has uh, evolved under your watch. Well, um, we're here down in the, the southeast of Ireland, so it's and uh, in actual fact, Ireland has one of the best climates for growing of oats. Uh, the best climate for the best climates you will get for growing oats will be if you get a cool, cooler, damp weather and a long growing season, and that's the best. You'll get the best oats out of that. And there'll be a nice, plumper oats will generate the starches within the grain and but uh, uh, one thing that the oats doesn't like it doesn't like uh, having getting into drought conditions it doesn't like getting into too dry a condition and oats are as I say ideally suited for Ireland so if we start with that um, then we're dealing with uh, local farmers so the, we'd be dealing with farmers within, uh, say, a 50 to, 50 to 60 mile radius of our mill here. Uh, we take in the oats at harvest time, and then we'd actually dry them down initially to get them down to a moisture at which they can be stored, because the oats will be coming in at uh, 50, uh, maybe about 18 to 20 percent moisture on average. And then mm-hmm. when we take them in, uh, we'll dry it down to 13 or 14, so, the, so it will be able to store properly for the rest of the year because we take them all in in the month, uh, month of August, the majority, maybe a little bit into September. And then we'll be taking harvesting. Those will be harvested for use all through the rest of the year. So, so uh, I would imagine you end up having to um, have quite a bit of, you know, just essentially straight storage space as as you're getting kind of all of the raw materials in, in kind of one goal and then doling them out through the year. Is that right? We do. We would have, uh, we would have uh, uh, sufficient storage for that. So uh, we'd be doing... Uh, between all of the all of the oats we'd be using with maybe fifteen to twenty thousand tons, and we would have storage for that. So wow. that would be. But we would, um, by having it within our own control, then uh, we'll be monitoring the temperature of the oats, and then we'll um, make sure that it doesn't heat and that, it, that, that, that we keep it right. So. So from there, when when you from the so you have the the harvest, you're coming in, you're reducing the moisture content so that they are you know stable to store, and then they're going from there into the milling process. Uh, we, we keep them. Well, we have two separate areas. We have our storage areas just a little bit away, and then we just uh, take it down in trailer trailer loads, and we bring it into the mill. 
And then, but when we're bringing it into the mill, we have um, sort of a, a kilning or roasting process, <coughs> and that will bring the and that will we'll use that to bring the moisture down again. So the moisture level that we'll be bringing is in from our storage area, maybe 13, 14%, and then we'll bring it down, the moisture down to around 10% for the milling process. So we we bring it into these uh, big vessels, we roast it, roast the oats, and that will bring it down to uh, 10% or maybe a little bit under it. And that now, develops that, the, the flavor the of the oats. Yeah, I was going to say that like changes. I was that was that was my question, and that impacts the flavor as well. It does, yes. And we uh, and we do it. Um, I suppose a little bit different from a, the way a lot of other people do. We actually roast it with the shell on the oat. Now I'm not quite sure. Uh, I suppose uh, just to make the point that there's one of the major things that we have to do then after that is to take the shell off the oats. Because the oats have a shell or a husk, which is actually quite hard, but it actually detaches reasonably easily. Um, if you take the the outer section of your um, wheat or barley, it's actually uh, it's actually more or less glued onto the grain. So you have to break down, or you have to to um, using abrasive to get it off, <laughs> but the, to get the bran off. But with with oats, the shell comes off quite easily. And uh, in actual fact, one of the things, if we look at oat milling, oat milling is completely different from flour milling. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you know, they might think that oat milling and flour milling are somewhere, diff- somewhere similar, but there's actually very little similarity because in flour milling you're actually breaking down the grain all the time and you're getting down to a smaller and smaller particle size. When we're milling oats, we're trying to keep the kernel intact. So we want to keep the kernel or the, the center of the grain intact at all times. And then if you look at the, the milling process, the milling process that we use is much more similar to rice milling than it is to flour milling. Because in rice milling, you're taking a kernel, or you want to get a good kernel out of it. And you, Like if you're a grain of rice, you want to get the kernel. With us, we want to get the kernels as well. And if we get a breakage or anything like that, that's a waste to us. So we want to keep... So, as I say, uh, if you want a similarity, it's rice milling rather than flour milling. And so, so I know, like, you know, the, I grew up eating um, Quaker, that other oatmeal, the Quaker, the Quaker oatmeal, which, and, and then when I was in uh, college, I started working for a place called Zingerman's, and they they sold for their breakfast cereal an Irish-style oat. And I, and I feel like the things that you hear a lot, you hear words like steel cut, um, and also the the like way it looks in your kind of bowl of hot cereal is different between like different types of oats. So can you talk a little bit about what, you know, what those differences are and why people do them? And then, you know, obviously where you guys have landed. Well, I suppose if you look at the steel cut and that's one that's, um, 
I suppose there's a lot of um, uh, Irish oatmeal will be will will be has been in the steel cut type of oatmeal. Uh, steel cut is where you take when we have the kernel of the grain, the kernel or the groat is what they call it. If you take the kernel and chop it into smaller pieces. That's what's called steel-cut oatmeal. That's the, so I'm taking, like, if I were to imagine essentially like a grain of rice, but, like, a, it's a grain of oats, and then I just kind of slice it, like, chop it up. If you, if you chop it up, if you take a grain of rice or a grain of oats, it's, the, the, the kernel of the oats will look like a, a, a grain of rice. So if you just chop that into smaller pieces, that will give you what they call steel-cut oatmeal, or in actual fact, what we call it over here in this side of the Atlantic, we call it pinhead oatmeal because it's like a little head of a pin. A small, small part. It's, you bring it down to a small particle size, and the small particle size is what is then steamed and rolled. So you steam and roll your pinhead oatmeal or your uh, steel cut. That makes your regular. Um, your, your regular flaked oatmeal, and but you you can equally well do what if you could also take the whole kernel, and the whole kernel will be the whole kernel or groat. If you flake that, that gives you what I think sometimes called the uh, old-fashioned oatmeal. So it's a larger flake because you're dealing with a larger feedstock, a larger particle. Uh, before it goes into the roller. Okay. It's like, I, it's like so interesting. There's like so many like different choices that, that, that you can make. So what, I mean, what have you seen as far as like from the consumer end are people's like attitude towards, I, I would guess that, you know, people are looking for things in general that are, you know, faster and easier um, but also maintaining kind of like the health, the health benefits. And so when you guys think about your production, is, is like how do you think about innovation within your business? Um, if you're going to keep the product the same, if you, if you put out new lines, like what does that look like for a company that is, has such a long history? I'm sure there's been a lot of experimentation and trial and error, but maybe that's not really the direction that you're interested in going, or maybe innovation happens in a different part of the business. Uh, no, no, we actually, we, we do, we're in, involved in a lot of innovation, and we're doing anything that will, anything involving oats, we're interested in it. So um, I suppose our, the, the, the regular flaked oatmeal, the, the, the regular oatmeal will be sort of our biggest business, but we've, I also brought it into other areas. We've got um, sachets and little the little tubs or little pots. We have those for uh, uh, for the convenience customers. We have uh, muesli as well, which is another thing because we've every, everything is what we do is based off oats. So we do our own muesli, which is the it hasn't come across. We haven't brought it across to uh, the states, but we're the largest uh, selling muesli in Ireland, and we're also recently put in 
a granola plant, and uh, we have a plant for doing oat cookies as well. So oh, we've nice. uh, lots, lots of different things, and uh, and even beyond that, we also do recipe development because uh, uh, my wife now is after doing a few cookbooks, uh, sort of mini cookbooks with maybe a dozen recipes in each, and so we use those, uh, send them out with with the packets, and what we're doing with those is we're sort of giving people alternative. Even using the basic oatmeal, uh, giving lots of alternative uses for them. So we're using that um, for. Uh, so we do a lot of experiment, experimentation in that, and using. And they'd be doing, say, oat breads, and even using oatmeal as a replacement for rice in a risotto, so to make a sort of an oat sotto. Uh, so we ah, lots of, lots never, of things uh, to I, talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of savory oatmeal. I feel like I like that's my kind of go-to uh, diner order is a bowl of oatmeal, hold the you know the sugar and the raisins, and put an egg on top of it. But I got to tell you, I get a very strange look from my waitress. Yeah, no, we've we've. Uh, we've we we use that, and we would be recommending it for, uh, say, with uh, coating products, say fish, and put some oatmeal on it. Uh, the oat sato, we have a recipe for that uh, using, uh, I think, to the chicken and uh, butternut squash and. Uh, various things like that. So, so we've all these different things. And actually, uh, and actually one area, no, we don't, we just started sell, selling a bit out there um, of recent times. Um, in the past year or two, we've started selling a little bit of oatmeal out to uh, South Korea. Oh, wow. And uh, the uh, the person who was selling it out there now, she's a Korean lady, and she was saying that she was in a school over there where they were serving um, the Flavin's oatmeal, and they were serving their oatmeal with a ginseng, garlic, and chicken. I, you know what? That sounds delicious, honestly. Um, well, so, right, but so you see, I it's, it's different. I, I think they've, they've a, a bit like yourself. They're very much into the oat, the oat um, sourcing. Now, you had mentioned that you, you guys have kind of a, a regional sourcing. So how does it work when a, a farmer wants to grow for you, with you, um, do you also do you own the the farms as well, or is it a separate kind of system? Oh, um, oh no, can, no, 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 no! Like, we would. Could I move to Ireland to become an oatmeal grower for you, or how does that end of, of things work? Uh, well, we would uh, we would be using local growers, and uh, I was just uh, there's some of the people now, and I have. I don't have all the records going back the years, but I was looking up some of the records going back uh, about a hundred years. And there's one chap I know that we're 
dealing with at the moment, and we've also dealt with his father and his grandfather as well. So we've been dealing with a lot, a number of these. We would have been dealing with them uh, down through different generations. We don't own. I have a small bit of land myself, but um, it's only uh, uh, my. It's only sort of hobby farming rather than uh, getting involved in it as a, a serious business. So it is uh, 99.9% of us outside farmers. But farmers we would have been dealing with uh, over the years. And, but we, we give them a contract, and we'll also give them a premium over, um, like the oats would be sort of a minority grain over here. There'd be more wheat and barley grown. So we'd give them maybe uh, a number of euros over the price of uh, feeding barley or uh, or feeding wheat, so depending on the depending on the year, but we would be paying a premium to the, the feed grains. So I was wondering about um, on the agriculture side. Um, do you guys do any research and development around the kind of genetics of the oats or growing practices or? you know, interventions around, um, you know, pests. Is that, do you get involved in that end of things or not really? Uh, we would be quite close to the farmers, all right, So because we would be dealing with directly with them, but we don't sell them uh, seeds or we don't sell uh, fertilizers or any of the chemicals or anything like that. So we would be, we would be just solely purchasing from the farmers, we would be uh, agreeing with them the, the varieties and the varieties that we would use, and uh, one of the one of the varieties uh, we use is a variety called Barra, which would be very specific to the Irish climate, and it's one that I think is probably a bit unusual as well, insofar as the same variety has been in use since. You know that you have different. You have all the seed companies, and they'll breed different seeds over right. the years. Yeah. And but this this variety is around since 1985. I think it came, first came on the market, and it's still uh, one of the best varieties because it's a nice, big, plump grain. You know, to be slightly bigger than uh, a lot of the other newer ones that are coming along. And another one called uh, Husky would be another one. So there's, there's two, three varieties that we would like. There will be other varieties that we mightn't like as well. Um, there were various varieties that uh, are more difficult to mill, and it's difficult to take the shell off them. So those would be ones. But we'd, uh, we can uh, generally work with most varieties anyway. But the oats uh, right. we get, the we get from the farmers is good. There'll be uh, a good bushel weight in, in the oats, which is one thing we look for. Um, uh, bushel weight or hectolitre weight, uh, whichever you prefer. Um, if you get a high bushel weight, that means you can get a good yield from the grain. So typically, you'll get maybe. Uh, around 60% of the weight of what you take in will be used as a finished product. 
So if you got in 100 tonnes of grain at harvest, you'd expect to get maybe 60 tonnes out of that. So the balance then will be your moisture losses, dust losses, and also the husk of the grain, the husk or the shell. Right, right. Oh, no, that's interesting. This is like when I go to the grocery store and, like, try to pick out a lemon and I'm, you know, they all look the same, but then you pick them up and like some of them are just going to have more juice, you know, you can tell because they're heavier. Um, John, we are going to take just a short break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the work that you guys have been doing around renewable energy. So hang tight. We're going to hear a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Thank you, Erin. Bye. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed. You get the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. So what you want to do once you buy whole grain flour is keep it kind of wrapped so that oxygen can't get to it so it doesn't go rancid. But the good news about having that fat is that it has a lot of flavor. If you want, you can actually buy the wheat germ, for instance, and add it back to flours. But if you buy Bob's Red Mill product, it already has the germ in it, so you don't have to. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we are back. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. We are on the line with John Slahaven. We are talking oatmeal, um, wonderful oat recipes, uh, oat growing processes, milling. Um, but now I want to talk about the other pieces that are, are kind of making your business particularly interesting, especially for this program. Um, and I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the, some of the spaces that you guys have have created some interesting stuff around um, renewable energy, around reducing your carbon footprint, and why this is important to you. Well, I suppose one of the things uh, we have uh, uh, three main planks to our renewable energy. And uh, number one, uh, we've, I've been talking uh, talked there a number of times about the old husk and the old shell. But one of the things we do with that is we use that as a fuel for our boiler. And in the milling process, we use a lot of steam. So we use the steam to uh, for uh, drying the oats in our kiln, so we're, where we're roasting the oats, so we use uh, that's done on a steam-heated uh, facility. Uh, when we make the oat flakes, you have to steam the oat flake before you roll it, and then when you're drying and for heating the offices and factory and all that. But so we use actually quite an amount of steam. But we put the the husk from the oat goes directly to our boiler, and that is the fuel that we use. So completely renewable, 
And the, the more uh, the more oats we produce, the more uh, oat husk we produce, and we have more energy from that. So that's the thing that we've done, and uh, we've that boiler went in in 1994. So I think we've been even. We were probably ahead of most of the people who were talking about renewable energies. And if we look at that, the only when we were working on that, the only only there was only one oat mill in the world that we could find that was doing a similar process that they were using the oat husk for their steam requirements, and the only people we could find that were doing that were a mill in the South Island of New Zealand. So I think we were we were quite unique in that. Yeah, so I'll say. and like it was like nice from a transportation standpoint too, right? It's like everything oh, oh is yes. right in one spot. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, just a single conveyor down into the boiler, and away you go. So that's <laughs> that's from our heat energy, and uh, then for electrical energy, uh, this year on the same site, we you know we've always been on the same site. And if we went back in the various, back the years, go back the centuries, we would have had a mill wheel. And in the 1930s, the mill wheel was taken out and a water turbine was put in. And the water turbine is now generating electricity. So we've got uh, the electricity from the original mill stream, and that's, uh, the mill stream, or it's like a, a canal or a channel that was dug out of the side of the valley, and it brings the water along at a higher level. And when it brings the water along, it gives a head of water, so the pressure of the water then is able to drive the turbine, and the turbine in turn drives a generator, and that gives us electricity for the mill. And that and because it was actually, I suppose, the, the mill is using a lot more electricity than it ever used in years gone by. Uh, what we've also done on top of that, we've put in a wind turbine, which is directly connected back down to the mill on uh, it's on a little hill uh, just behind the mill, which uh, unfortunately I happened to own a bit of land on which it was being put as well, so uh, it's just directly connected back to the mill, and that gives us uh, uh, more electrical energy. So if we take the total uh, kilowatts of energy that's required within the plant, I reckon that we're probably about 60% of our total energy, that's including electrical energy and heat energy, is coming from our own generated sources. So it's, uh, I think it's quite an achievement for uh, for any company. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's like that. Like that's again what I was talking about earlier in the show. It's interesting because I feel like oatmeal is this thing that feels at the same time very old-fashioned, but also be- because of um, you know work like this around the production end, but also just a way we're rethinking um, from like a recipe standpoint and how people are eating and engaging with oats. It also feels new and exciting. And um, 
did I did I hear correctly that you guys were were recently uh, was it voted one of Ireland's favorite favorite food food brands? Is that right? That's right. It just happened there recently as well, and we've um, we've actually there was a some green energy awards there uh, last month, and we got. We were the only company to go away with three awards. I think the, for uh, the green energy in food and drink, um, the, and uh, sustainability, and uh, for medium-sized companies. So we, we were the only company to come away with uh, three awards out of it. So we're uh, actually, I think we're probably ahead of our game in a lot of these uh, situations. <laughs> Well, I think it, it's it's definitely been great to learn a little bit more about the operation. I know we've been seeing a lot of really exciting um, grain work um, here in in the Northeast and across the U.S. Um, and a little bit in a little bit in the oatmeal front, um, we have some friends up in Maine who make a really wonderful kind of regional oatmeal. Um, and it, so it's nice to it's nice to see kind of like what what are what are the options. Over time, and also kind of tuck into a little bit of the history. Um, we are we're just about out of time, but before we go, I'm wondering um, how how have you been eating your oatmeal lately? Well, I have uh, oatmeal, let's say uh, every day, uh, and I wow. So I soak <laughs> it overnight, and I suppose I've. It mightn't be exactly how all the purists would do it. A lot of people will uh, uh, use the stove, but I generally use the microwave. But what I actually like to put in mine is uh, every, about once a week or so, we'd put uh, a jar of raisins into the fridge, and I'd soak, and I'd fill up the same jar with apple juice, and then uh, leave the leave the raisins soak, and then when I want them for the porridge in the morning, I put them in with the porridge, put them in the microwave, and then I have lovely juicy and plump raisins uh, with my porridge. Nice, nice. I'm so impressed that you still eat oatmeal every day. That is a testament. <laughs> well, what else could um, I eat? <laughs> exactly right. Um, thank you so much for for joining us this morning. It's been a real pleasure um, learning more about the business. Um, I know, folks here in the U.S., if you want to um, check out their products, um, learn a little bit more about the history of oats, um, and and kind of get some pictures of some of the stuff we talked about on the show today. You can find them at www.flahavens.com. That's F-L-A-H-A-V-A-N-S.com. John, um, I wish you in advance a, a happy St. Patrick's Day, and hopefully we'll catch you next time you're in New York. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to talk to you. You too. Hang tight, guys. We're going to take just a short station break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with filmmaker Meryl Williams to talk about her new piece, uh, and you're going to want to hear this. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right right back.
And we are joined in the studio by Meryl Williams, a filmmaker, to talk about her new film, Biophilia. Meryl, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was really stoked to get um, a little information on your film, uh, like a farm-oriented love story with a strong female protagonist talking about wildness. Yeah. Um, give us a little background. Where did the idea for the film originate? Yeah. Um, so the film was written by my friend and longtime collaborator. Her name is Marina Mitchelson, and she lives in L.A., so that's the only reason why she's not joining us in the studio today. But um, we spent a lot of time out on this piece of land that's my, my family's sheep ranch, uh, and it's out in Petaluma, California. Um, I actually, I got married on the land there a couple years ago and it's been in the family for, for years. And my husband's dad still tends to the land and the sheep out there. And every time we go out, we love to go out to the land. Um, and so for the wedding, we were, we were both out there for a, a good while just preparing and both of us have, um, a love for food. I actually worked at Roberta's for a long time. So <laughs> you're stationed well. And it's like coming full circle, right? Yeah. It's like coming full circle. You know, I'm just like remembering the times I was like singing bluegrass here, <laughs> um, on a late night, um, when you were still getting your programming started and it's so nice to be here. Um, but yeah, just a real love for food. Um, worked at Roberta's for a while, while I was acting and Marina also, lives a bit of a double life as a she co-owns a, a cafe and art space with her family in LA which is the reason why she moved back out to LA um and yeah so we both have always cooked together and you know met up over farmers you know at the farmers market and gotten what we wanted and to make a, a great meal together while we're making you know things and trying to nourish ourselves in this way and then we were out on the land, and um, my sister-in-law, Sarah, and her boyfriend, Sam, were coincidentally going to be, the timing worked out that they were going to be right after the wedding moving in there to make a go of farming on the land. They both have agricultural degrees from NYU. Um, and they started this internship first to get some groundwork into their, you know, farming education, which uh, as far as our conversations with a lot of local farmers and just farmers in general, we've learned that that's so important. You know, just going out on your own is just not really advised. Um, and the, the internship kind of fell through um, too soon into it. And so they landed um, on Rocky Canyon Ranch, which is where we're going to be shooting the film. And that's... Um, that's this piece of land I'm talking about in Petaluma, California. And they just didn't really, they didn't get to garner enough, you know, education and support that they would have. Um, and so they were there and trying to make a go of it on their own. And it proved to be extremely challenging and hard. And um, Marina and I also just being out there, got to talk to a lot of people in the family. There's a long tradition of farming, um, just in that area, uh, and also in the family, um, friends of the family get togethers where there's lots of farmers at the table. Um, 
And so we were really inspired by this story and, you know, also coupled with our love for food and environmentalism and, um, and then just what you're talking about, this really gritty, raw female protagonist that we so rarely get to see. And so we started taking in all of these stories from the land and the history that we've heard around these tables and, you know, the emotional push and pull over this land, which um, it's very much steep in, steeped in, you know, what people want to happen to the land, whether it's a dairy farm or, you know, if it can be used to, to grow vegetables, uh, you know, overgrazing because there's so many cows feeding off of the land um, and just how and how challenging it really is. And this romantic idea of coming to this piece of land, um, which I know that Sarah just felt, I think, something that I've talked a lot with um, this. Uh, there's this farmer, Ann Teller. She's in her 80s, and she's a close uh, friend of, of mine through James, my husband's grandmother. And, and she just talks about young farmers and how there's such a little access to land these days. And I think um, just because of the prices going up and what's happening with the land. And Sarah felt like she had this piece of land, and so it would be silly of her not to try Um but we were so inspired by just how freaking hard, <laughs> how hard it is, you know, and, and also um, the ranch specifically, the time we spent out there, it's um, it's extremely remote. So it's it's in Petaluma in this whole farming community where there's a lot of sheep, sheep farms. Um, but when you get to the road, it's on this road called Chileno Valley, which is beautiful. It's rolling hills and landscapes where we're shooting. And you have to then drive down about a 20 minute dirt road even to get to the property. Um, so you're about an hour away, you know, from just any sense of community. Um, so we were really also interested in the psychological aspect of what happens to you. You know, this romantic idea of going back to the land um, and being in wildness and nature, and then also what that does to you, what that does to a relationship, um, and and how uh, it it reveals to you. Um, who you are. That's something that we've also been hearing. I was reading this book by Kristen Kimball called The Dirty Life. I don't know if you've ever um, read no. it. It's this really cool book that um, Sarah recommended, lots of farmers recommend. I mean, it's, I think a lot of farmers read it and think, oh God, you know, it's nice to read a book and it's not like only romantic. It's actually really funny and it's it's a lot about the challenges of this of this farmer Kristen Kimball and how she left the city and and started this farm called Essex Farm um out in upstate um but uh there's this part where she talks about just you know whether you like it or not like you you know working in alone in nature with yourself and and trying to grow things and trying to actually do this thing called farming will reveal something um, about yourself uh, to yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, we're, you know, we, I live in Brooklyn, Marina lives in LA. We're very fascinated by this. Um, and I think also very um, humbled and inspired by the real stories um, because it's something that we've wanted to explore and, um, but also are aware that, you know, we're making a film about it. So through the process, um, we've been connecting with a lot of actual farmers and getting their stories and sharing their stories through the making of the film, which is my interest in reaching out to you, you know, and spreading the word about the important work that they're doing. And, um, 
and kind of bringing up this this culture of of farming. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll I'll pause there and see if you have any other questions because I feel like I talked for a bit. <laughs> Well, you gave us, like, definitely the overview, which is awesome. Um, We are just about out of time, so I want to make sure that people know how to follow the work. I know that you guys recently um, went through your first round of uh, crowdfunding, which was successful. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. if folks want to kind of keep in touch, you have a website, um, biophiliafilm.com. But what are what are kind of I have two two questions um, before we're cut off by David in the engineer box. Yeah, totally. One is what where does the name come from, and two is is what's next for the film, and what should people be looking for? Yeah, um, the name comes from um, it's it means our natural inclination towards the plants and, and animals, so our natural. Um, you know, attraction to the land uh, and our relationship to it. So it's inspired by that. Um, you know, there's many definitions of the term, but this, but that being the inspiration for the title and also just very much the undercurrent of the film. Um, and and then what's next for the film? We, yeah, we're super happy about the crowdfunding. It was, um, we feel so supported. We have almost 300 people that, that donated to us. Um, we, uh, and we do have that website. And I think that something I should, that's good to, to let you guys know is that, um, we're still fundraising. We are pretty much all the way there, but we're looking for partners in like Sonoma County. We, um, just uh, garnered a partnership with Nyon McAvoy, who has McAvoy Ranch out there, and he's supporting the film as an associate producer. Um, we're looking for any kind of local businesses that want to get involved, and anyone, if they want to support the film, can can go on our website, and there's still a contribution link there um, via PayPal, um, and all donations are tax deductible. So, um, yeah, so still, so still getting all that support up until April 15th, and and then from there on out, you can go to the website and all of the information will be there. There's updates and uh, Instagram and um, is a good way to follow us at Biophilia Film. We're constantly putting up updates and, you know, and about these farmers that we're connecting with and these herbalists. Um, I am going to be playing an herbalist. So that's another uh, another part that we're investigating and and educating our, our viewers about. So if you're interested in any of that, um, yeah, you should come check us out. We're constantly sharing and uh, very inspired in the roots of the film. So constantly sharing all of that stuff if you're interested in it. Awesome. Meryl, thank you so much. <laughs> I cannot wait to uh, watch the film and, and wish you luck in the interim. It sounds like you guys have bitten off a very big and exciting project. So yeah, we're super excited. you on making it through that first round. Yeah, yeah. And I guess just uh, female filmmakers. I guess that's the last thing I should really say is we're, you know, and female farmers. Um, and the, those are two big things that we're promoting um, and uh, and want to, you know, to uncover to the world and uh, and make those stories heard. So that's super important to us. And thanks so much for having us on. It, it means everything. Awesome. Well, <laughs> all right, guys, check it out. You heard it here first. Uh, Biophilia. It's biophiliafilm.com. Um, big thanks to um, John, my guest from the top of the show, Eat Your Oats, watch uh, some good female filmmakers in anticipation of this amazing film by uh, a group of uh, wonderful women doing some interesting stuff on agriculture. And 
keep tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, as you know, this show is available for free, like all 34 of our weekly shows. Uh, if you found us on iTunes, please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the reviews really help other people find the show. We are, of course, a 501c3 nonprofit, and every dollar counts. So if you have a few bucks to give, visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. And throw a couple bucks our way. We've got some great T-shirts and other gifts for you there. Um, or just sign up for the newsletter. Keep in touch with us. We'd love to hear from me more. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.